and you might have found the moment where Eugene O'Neill was writing this play along <laughs> and went, ah, it doesn't have to end so badly this time. <laughs> right. <laughs> I could have somebody choose to do the right thing at yeah. least once. <laughs> I'm feeling nostalgic tonight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We're so excited to be with you again for another episode. We are pulling from one of the great playwrights in Western literature. Yes. One of the people who's really made Western dramatic literature what it is today. We're doing Mm -hmm. a play by Eugene O'Neill. Yes, indeed. Any of you who have studied theater for any length of time have likely read a play by Eugene O'Neill. He's kind of America's uh, drama writer from the previous century. Um, In in competition with Arthur Miller. Of course, yes, in competition with Arthur Miller, but the 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 two of them run run side by side in a lot of ways. There's it's uh, actually a lot of comparisons in the play that we'll be doing today with Miller, just because the family's name is Miller, as we are doing All Wilderness, which is uh, a comedy of recollection in three acts. That's what it says on the cover, right? I I don't know. I mean, that's that's an interesting way to say it because (laughs) the the notable thing about this Eugene O'Neill play is that it's a comedy. If you're a little bit surprised that our first Eugene O'Neill play is not, let's say, Long Day's Journey into Night, or Moon mm-hmm. for the Misbegotten, Desire or The Iceman Cometh, or Desire Under the Elms. If you're a little bit surprised, it's because we don't like those plays as much as we like Hot Wilderness. <laughs> I wouldn't go that <laughs> they're, far. they're all great plays. I mean, I'm, I'm going to get I'm going to get slaughtered for saying this to a bunch of theater people, but this is my favorite of any Eugene O'Neill play I've read. Wow, I really? Find, I find many of them are just too dark for me. They're sure, just too sure. sad and filled with sadness. <laughs> <laughs> and I just so enjoy Ah Wilderness. It's a pleasure to read and experience. I think it is. I think, I think it still accesses kind of a deep layer of humanity, like so many of Eugene O'Neill's plays do so well. Um, but it does it without making me eternally sad. <laughs> <laughs> so take that for what it's worth. I'm, right. I'm sure many of you are shaking your heads and turning off the episode. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about, <laughs> which is true. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll get into the, the the more tragic ones of the of his eventually, and I'm sure we'll, we'll I'll be able to drag you through some of those, and it'll be lots of fun. Uh, <laughs> Um, some quick context for this play, just at the beginning. Uh, it is it is a kind of a it's it's as I mentioned before. It's from the 20th century. It was uh, produced at the Guild Theater in 1933. There have also been a couple of other prominent adaptations. There was a 1935 film. Uh, apparently, there's a musical out there as well. So there's different iterations of this play. But this play is often done in community theaters, in colleges, in high schools sometimes. And actually, I was in a production of this play during college. I played Nat Miller, um, the dad of this group. So um, Yes, that was my freshman year and your whatever upperclassman year. What, junior year? Yeah, I think it was my junior year. So I was the assistant stage manager for that production. So yeah. I, I'm sure as both of us were reading, it's very hard to get those voices out of your head. I mean, I can Absolutely. still hear the way that the actor said those lines now years and years ago. Yeah. And this is one that, like, I definitely this what would, would want to take another stab at, probably even a couple of years later than I am right now, because there's so much dadness in that role for Matt me. Matt Miller is just the ultimate dad. He's such a dad. Like He's dad the, jokes. He is the dad. The American yeah. dad might be Matt <laughs> Miller. Yeah. So I, I, I would love to do this play again. It was a very fun play. But yes. Um. Let's uh, I'll I'll kind of pitch over to you. You want to do some just kind of general synopsis for it? Yeah, so. absolutely. In the style of plays from the early and middle 20th century, this has a a whole bunch of characters more than you're used to seeing. 
in a play of the more recent times, and there's a lot more subplot than we would be normally used to seeing in plays of the recent times. So I'll kind of go through the different layers of the plot just just briefly. The, the bulk of the story follows the Miller family, and they live somewhere in the Northeast um, in a small town. The date is 4th of July, and as because it's the 4th of July, everybody's on holiday. So they're enjoying the holiday together. The parents of the Miller family, the matriarch and patriarch, are Nat and Essie Miller. They have a, a group of children, Arthur Miller, who is currently courting, probably soon to be engaged to um, a, a young girl from the town. So he's he's very much involved with that throughout the course of the play. And, you know, his relationship is maybe his small part of the subplot. Mildred and Tommy are the youngest children. They don't have much by way of plot going on of their own, but they both contribute to uh, different parts of the other plots. Um, and then they have Essie and Arth, Essie and Nat Miller have a son named Richard, who occupies maybe the main plot of uh, Wilderness. And Richard's story is that he's become sort of a young radical, uh, reading, as everybody likes to say over and over again, all those crazy books that we all read when we were young people. Um, and he is courting and claims to be engaged to a young woman named Muriel. Uh, and what happens is that Muriel's father comes across all of the anarchist and very maybe romantic at times sexual literature that he's been giving her as he's been enlightening himself to the world and so Muriel's father storms over and says this relationship is over your son's a radical he's not going to come anywhere near and he forces Muriel to write the breakup letter all this to say that Richard who's sort of dramatic and uh, uh, this sort of heart strung heart on his sleeve kind of young feels everything deeply man young boy whatever uh he sort of he reacts badly so what happens over the rest of the course of the play is his recovery from the breakup and then realization that they might not really be broken up at one point he goes to a bar and almost sleeps with a, a prostitute so lots of stuff happened with him over the course of the play that we'll get in more deeply and then there's this other subplot which is maybe what i think is one of the really more poignant uh, really nice portions of the play in terms of writing and character development what I believe to be Nat's sister, Lily Miller, I just, I think that, I think because of the last names, um, Li Lily Miller lives with the Miller family, um, is very good friends with Essie, and she lives there because she had to leave, she, she has nowhere else to go because she was going to marry a man named Sid, who ended up being a drunk and a gambler and was no good. And so she, she ended up not being able to marry him. Well, then she didn't have anywhere else really to go. So she came to live with them. She still lives with them many years later. And Sid has tried to become kind of a reformer and come back into her life. And so on the 4th of July, he's come from what he says is his other job in uh, Waterbury. Is that right? And he uh, he comes to celebrate the fourth and he he's constantly asking her to marry him. And, and so what happens in their relationship and whether can Sid can really stay on the wagon uh, is occupies their portion of the subplot. Mm hmm. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's a that's a Eugene O'Neill play for you. Yeah. And actually and Sid is really kind of tied into the unit as well because he's Essie's brother, Essie Miller, uh, Nat Miller's wife. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sid is her brother. Right. So, it's so, a very... so Nat's sister Lily is together, sort of. With, was together. Uh, yeah. Was together, is together. And yeah, it's all yeah, kind of yeah. gray. Uh, Nat's sister Lily is, was together with Essie's brother Sid. <laughs> yep. So, I, I mean, I don't know why he imagined the play that way, but those are the characters we're given. And it, it does right. actually, that relationship, especially between Essie and Sid, is played out a little bit because Essie is pretty vocal about Sid's behavior in a way mm -hmm. that I think maybe she wouldn't be if he were just a strange man. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so, and and that one, I'm it's it's complex to even wonder which one to talk about first because those two plots i think the richard plot and the sid slash lily slash 
that drama with the family plot runs very strongly together throughout this play. I don't think yeah, they're actually really away, really nicely tied together yeah. in the scene where Richard returns from the bar, and Sid is the one who uh, is sort of there to clean him up and help him uh, right. because he's just come off of uh, a drunken bout of his own. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so previous like the the first scene of the play, it's you know it's July Fourth. Everyone is very excited for the day. There's all sorts of, you know, family kind of business going on. And that's what this play does is like make family business happen on stage very well. Like you're just kind of. Yeah. Like the opening lines are Tommy, the youngest kid, the the person of the play who probably has the least to do with anything. Yeah. Uh, I think that, yeah, I mean, again, there's lots of people out here who will be mad at me probably, but I think that you could probably cut Tommy from the play without too much notice. <laughs> he just doesn't uh, he just doesn't have much to do with the plot of what actually sure. goes on. Uh, but he comes on. He's the first character you see, and all you see is him run outside to play firecrackers on 4th of July and the parents telling him to be careful. I mean, that's just classic family stuff, you know? It right. doesn't really do anything but set the scene about it being the fourth and establish that we're with a family. Mm-hmm. Yep. So everyone like plans for the day, and then then the uh, the Sid and Nat go off to a picnic. Um, well, first they take the ladies on a drive, and that's right. a, that's a so big like a deal because Sid is yeah. because Sid and Lily don't live together. They're not really together. Sid actually lives in a different town. Uh, but Sid is here celebrating the holiday. So doing things as a, quote, couple is a fairly big deal in the progress of Sid and Lily's relationship. And mm. the large question that looms over them, will they ever get married? Lily continually says no, but I think everyone else feels like that's an open question. Right. And so doing things like going on a drive as a couple. That's a big deal. And deciding that later on we're going to go to fireworks together as a couple. Each of those has significant uh, emotional baggage for the characters when they decide to do those things. Mm-hmm. And the it g- gives the opportunity for Nat and Essie to kind of be like matchmakers because they have both their siblings there. And they just <laughs> obviously this event has probably happened before. Right. Family events. They would probably gather and this awkwardness has occurred. But for whatever reason, July 4th of this year, they've decided to make another concentrated effort to bring them back together. So, And, and while we're on that, Jackson, why make this play about the 4th of July? I'm, I'm curious about what, I mean, did Eugene O'Neill just decide to write a play about the 4th of July and this is what came of it? Does the, I mean, obviously there's a relationship to it being a holiday because it pulls together these parts of the family that aren't typically together. And a lot, there's a long, long history of plays taking place on the holidays and other works of literature because that's what holidays do. They pull unfamiliar, unsimilar people together, which causes tension and dramatic conflict. But yeah. why the 4th, right? Why not Thanksgiving? Any thoughts, having played Nat Miller? I think it's because, especially for the for the units, I, I think it's t- it's it's tied to what you've already said is that this is a very special holiday, but it's it's the summer holiday of that time frame, and the shenanigans that occur during that summer holiday and the mood that everyone is in is very indicative of that time of year. I think if this were a Thanksgiving play, it'd be a very, very different play. Um, if this was a Christmas play again, substantially different play, but this play you have, you know, late nights, hot days, moonlight picnics, fireworks, all sorts of events, and, uh, and of course, eventually opportunities to get very intoxicated throughout the day as a result of that type of holiday. So, I, I, yeah, I like the way you said it about it being sort of the summer holiday, because I think you're right. It serves a practical purpose, and the practical purpose, which is makes the 4th of July different from other holidays potentially, is that there are external events that the family goes to, right? A Thanksgiving play would largely take place in the house. 
Right. right? Yeah. Everybody stays around and hangs together. But a 4th of July play means that there are parties and picnics and fireworks which can carry the characters out of the house into the world in different family units. Mm-hmm. So that, that serves that practical purpose. But I also think, and I really love the symbolic purpose it serves, right? Like high school literature, you learn about the way that the seasons symbolize the seasons of life. And so this play is in large part about Richard, who's in the summer of his life. Right. The, that sort of youthful. Everything's coming out. Everything's, uh, you know, he's he's growing into what he's going to be. He hasn't yet reached the fall of his life. Everything is lush and gorgeous about his experience. And the Fourth of July is the culmination, the climax of summer. And so this play takes Richard's life and says, this is going to be, this is your trial by fire. This is the Fourth <laughs> of July of your young life. Right. This mm-hmm. is the height. What's going to happen yep. from here? Fall and eventually winter. Mm hmm. And you kind of get the sense that there are there's probably four plays in here that are that could be written about that because there's three children and then Sid and Lily and then Nat and Essie have their own journey that they go on as well throughout this play. But it's just it I, I think I think you're right in saying that in focusing on Richard in that and that this is the personification of his grappling with that right and it's probably a strong argument for richard being the central character of the play as if that weren't obvious but you could make potentially some other arguments about the different journeys that the characters go on one of them being that the sid and lily journey i think is the most poignant Mm -hmm. um but but the richard journey is so closely tied to the symbolism that eugene o'neill selected if you're writing a play about sid and lily then you're writing a play about fall right yeah so that's a thanksgiving play (laughs) but When you're writing a play about a teenage boy and, you know, the the hardest part, the hardest thing to happen to him in his short 16 years of life, you write a play about the 4th of July. Right. Yep. (laughs) When all of his siblings are home and they all get to witness his glorious demise. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about that a little bit more. So let's focus in on Richard for a little bit. He kind of shows up, books in hand, uh, his parents worrying about the content of what he's reading. He's brought into the room and he... You know, is 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 that child that holds his own in the presence of adults, says enough kind of uh, impetuous things and believes them strongly enough that the parents and the adults all say, this is so endearing, I'm not going to smother it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to make one small addendum to what you said. He thinks he holds his own in the right. presence of adults. And yeah. he's shattered when he realizes that rather than listening to him, most people are laughing at him right. through yep. the course of his scenes. <laughs> yeah, He has, I, I think there's especially two moments in the first couple of scenes where he goes on rants about how evil the 4th of July is and yep. how uh, the morals and scruples of society will be undone and everybody <laughs> who's got these old fogey ideas that's what he says a lot these old fogey ideas about love and romance will be undone by the new world order (laughs) and his parents just sort of well Nat at at least laughs his way through Essie is very concerned about what is going on with this poor boy Uh, but Nat sort of in a fatherly yeah I used to be that way too sort of uh, you know Essie's shocked to learn that Nat read a lot of this stuff that Richard is reading when he Mm -hmm. was his age Essie's like I can't believe you read this (laughs) what and Nat's like well everybody did yeah you kind of get the sense that Nat was probably a revolutionary or something like that at the time of his childhood as well because he lets a lot of it just kind of exist and he's kind of, almost kind of proud i think of those moments when when richard decides to hold his own on those grounds or attempt to hold his own yeah on he's those very grounds. proud of richard because you know the things that are said about richard about his character are one despite the fact that he's sort of going through this reading uh anti uh, I don't know, reading literature that's against the societal values of the time. He's going through that phase and he's going through these, obviously through the course of the play, through this phase of uh, drinking and hanging out with the wrong sorts of people. Through all of that, it's maintained that Richard really is sort of an innocent person. And so what we're yeah. watching is someone who is innocent at heart uh, go through the process of trying to make himself grow up. Uh, by by his way, by reading of books. And he learns, I think, probably over the course of the play, that the way to really grow up is not through reading books. That that might, you know, at least the, the life experience of what he goes through 
during this 90 minute, two hour journey is certainly grows him up more. So we get yeah. that about Richard, that he's really sort of innocent at heart and that he's very honest, that, that his, yeah. his father's consistently proud that if he asks him something, Richard's going to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That comes up multiple times in the play is, is, you know, the, the, the relationship that they have built with each other is, is one of trust and that they both appreciate that, which is, it's kind of that that it's interesting to play with what Nat's relationship is to his other children in in contrast to that. Obviously, Tommy is far too young to to add too much weight to it. But I think Mildred and Arthur, um, both both uh, are characters that he would be able to have a relationship of that sort with, and and definitely with Arthur, he doesn't. <laughs> I don't get the feeling he's kind of a lot of times throughout he's kind of dancing around Arthur. He complains about him not uh, being around as much over the fourth because uh, he's off uh, courting. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the the, the family. It's like Bland or Brand. Brand like or, that. yeah, yep. Um, That's interesting so, because I can sort of imagine Nat Miller having a very similar relationship with Arthur when Arthur was Richard's age. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the feelings between Nat and Richard are the feelings of of a person who's in the middle age of his life with someone who's still very young and sort of looking with endearment at pride at this youthful person. And I still get the feeling that Nat's proud of Arthur, but it's more proud of him as an equal. Sure. Right? Yeah. Uh, if, if you're a person who you know went away to college after you were in high school, you may have this experience where several years into college, you go back for a holiday and realize that you're no longer going back as a kid. And there's this weird moment where you you know that you talk to your parents for the first time in a while, you go back home for the first time in a while, and there's just a subtle difference in the way yeah. that you're interacting. And you start to go, I think that I've just grown up. Right. That just ha- I think that just happened. Yeah. I'm now talking rules. to my parents as another adult. And you don't know when it happens or why it happens, but I think Arthur has turned the corner on that. So the mm-hmm. complaints that Nat has of Arthur are complaints of another adult, right? Uh, you sure. know, you're you're not around for the holiday. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, why didn't you tell us you could sing? What do you mean you're talking to this girl? Blah mm-hmm. blah blah. Whereas the complaints about Richard are really the complaints of a father to a son. Things that mm-hmm. he still wants Richard to develop as a as he's growing into a man. It is interesting to note, though, Arthur kind of has a false floor eventually. He's like, he, he needs to let people know. They both need to let people know. But he's like packing, like he, he's wearing all his college regalia, and he's very concerned with telling all of his siblings, you don't need to know my business, it's my business, and, and I'm, I'm different than you, I'm adult now. So yes, he he's very. A lot of his lines say things like like the the, the subtitles or the uh, the the stage directions will say things like with dignity or right. <laughs> trying to maintain his pride <laughs> with affected dignity. Yeah, I, I mean he's very. Uh, I'm a grown up now, not a kid. In fact, there's actually a moment where that occurs late in the play. Nat Miller is really frustrated about something, and he tells all the kids to leave the room. And Arthur, yeah. and then like the stage directions say, like Arthur tries to stay as if he's not a kid or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually, Nat's like, Arthur, you too. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Well, I'm an adult. I don't know what you mean. Yep. I'm going to sit at the adult table this Thanksgiving. <laughs> right. <laughs> Dang it! It would be a good Thanksgiving play. Um, <laughs> so let's rip the rug out from Richard a little bit. What What is the big inciting incident that happens that propels Richard's storyline forward? Right. Well, I've mentioned it in, in, the, uh, in the summary that what happens is that Muriel's father discovers that he's been setting her, sending her both like anarchist revolutionary political literature, but also some uh, fairly, they use this word a lot, so I'll use it too, some pretty warm uh, love poetry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in fact, and remember this plays from a long, long time ago. So long, if long this time. doesn't mean anything to you, it doesn't mean anything to me either. But at one point they say, <laughs> That's that's some warm something for fair. Right. <laughs> that's that's too hot for fair or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't know what you just said, but I think it means that that's like sexy material. Right. I think that's what you're saying. <laughs> 
Um, so the Muriel's father finds out and and blows a gasket about it, and he forces Muriel to write this breakup letter, which sends our dramatic Romeo Richard spiraling into affected depression. Yes, and, and and actually, the stage directions for Richard in scene two, after all this has occurred, say something like, you know, he he's grown to love being a a martyr. <laughs> yeah, like, he yep. loves the misery. It's all part of the experience. <laughs> So he's moping around. He doesn't like the fact that the family treats him like a kid still. Eventually, what does he decide to do? Well, he decides uh, he intercepts someone coming for his brother, for Arthur. There's a, a friend of his from college who's coming. He says he's got two dates for the evening and needs someone for the other the other person in that uh, equation. And and he's looking for Arthur. And uh, he he gets him to take him along. Instead, uh, uh, Richard gets him to take him along for the night or say that he will, and uh, he's going to finish supper and go and join with them. And he's, he's, he does this as, like, his way of getting back at Muriel and his family. I'll show them that I'm an adult, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he's going to go out on the town that night and, and show them all. And it's a little hard to tell because there's a little bit of a language barrier in what some terms mean. But I don't believe that Wint, who's the friend, really informs Richard of what seems to be the case, which is that these women are not just dates. <laughs> right. Yep. They're, uh, they're not just uh, local women that he you know, chatted into going to the bar with them. They're, uh, they're prostitutes. Yeah. And so yep. I'm, I'm not sure. It's, I don't believe that Richard knows that. Uh, there could be some term that I'm misunderstanding with the language being from the early 1900s, but I don't believe Wint tells him that. Uh, mm-hmm. And Richard then... The, this first scene of Act Two is his is him on the date with this woman, and she Bell is her name, and she is trying to seduce him into buying her drinks and giving her money to go upstairs over the course of the of that scene. And what does Richard decide in the culmination of that scene? Well, ultimately, he doesn't. And 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 I want to kind of live in this scene for a little bit. I'll kind of uh, synopsize a bit more. Uh, they. He he decides to get up and leave. He 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 doesn't. Uh, she 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 kisses him, and he kind of like backs away and gets all panicky. And and he's trying his best to present a I'm I'm old. I've done all this before sort of face. And it finally breaks down. And he starts to you know. And, kind and of, notably, he's drinking a lot. He right. tries at the beginning not to have too much of a drink. Like at one point, Bell says, "Your beer's gotten flat. You need to finish it." And he's like. I like it like that. <laughs> right. I like it without. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but eventually she talks him and presses him into drinking real alcohol, not just beer, and at a yep. significant volume. So through the course of the scene, he's getting notably drunker as he decides, go on. Yeah, yeah. As he decides ultimately that he's he's not a fan anymore, he kind of devolves into a full drunken stupor eventually. He starts standing up on tables and quoting things until people start to throw him out. Another person comes in and takes basically takes over with Bell, um, and he's, he ends up recognizing him as the son of Nat Miller. And Nat Miller is kind of a bigger person in town. He runs a newspaper uh, in this in this small large small town, I think is the way that the, the play describes it. So uh, as soon as as he's as soon as uh, Richard is recognized, the whole thing kind of changes. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's after the bartender has thrown him out and kicked him kicked him out the door and served so, him drinks as a minor and served him drinks as a minor. And and let's let's talk about that for a minute because I think that there's good contrast in this play for how alcohol is used between Sid and Richard. But in general, alcohol. Especially in O'Neill plays, I feel like O'Neill wrote the book on how to use alcohol in plays, or and at least especially pro- alcoholism. Alco- yes, mm-hmm. alcoholism in plays as well certainly provided ample examples of it. And I think this uh, scene with Richard is a bit of a change for him, right? Um, so, so alcohol removes inhibitions in plays. A lot of times you'll hear people say that's how alcohol should be used in plays is to reduce people's inhibitions to get at what they're going at. That's also a very, very good argument for alcoholism. So let's not dig into that too deeply. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, but it's often used as a tool in that way in plays to take away people's inhibitions. Um, 
it kind of gets flipped on its head with Richard, though. Well, and and it, and it, it's spoken about that it's different with Richard. Richard says yeah. in the aftermath of all of his hangover and blah blah blah, he says, you know, when I when I was drinking, it didn't make me funny and energetic like it did Uncle Sid. It didn't make me happy. It just made me sicker and sadder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the you know the the overused trope of just drink enough and you'll say yes doesn't happen with him. Um, he uh, he he gets sick and and, and that and honestly that might be one of the you might have just found the moment in the plot where any other Eugene O'Neill play would have fallen off into tragedy, right? Yeah, I mean mm-hmm. uh, Eugene O'Neill plays are famous for tragic culminations for their central characters they Mm -hmm. decide to do the wrong thing they're weak in the wrong moment they hurt the wrong person too many times and it ends in disaster and you might and and oftentimes there is a significant amount of alcohol involved (laughs) yeah because that's eugene o'neill it's it's just part of the culture of eugene o'neill plays Mm -hmm. for better or worse and you might have found the moment where eugene o'neill was writing this play along (laughs) and went "Eh, it doesn't have to end so badly this time (laughs) right I could have somebody choose to do the right thing at least once. (laughs) I'm feeling nostalgic tonight. But even then, he still writes Sid into this play. Right, Who is is the the example of someone who takes it too far. He gets... So so he and uh, Nat go to this picnic, this 4th of July picnic. And I'm bouncing all around here, but this is the contrast. These scenes happen right next to each other. Um... They, they go to the picnic and they come back for supper and they roll into supper and Nat is uh, basically the equivalent of buzzed after this, but Sid is full out having almost having a hard time walking and, and, and that's a really big deal even if the rest of the scene didn't happen we'd already have a big plot moment because in scene one and uh, maybe early part of scene two um it's be it's been clear that Lily expects Sid not to drink and that she's hanging some yeah. of her hopes for their future relationship together on that. Sid has promised her that he's on the wagon. He's promised her that he's cleaning up his act. And she says, look, he's not going to drink. He told me he wouldn't drink. He said he's not going to drink anymore. They're going to go to this picnic, but he said he's not going to drink. And Sid keeps making jokes about it. And uh, I think mm-hmm. Lily knows to be worried, but she maintains a sort of facade of confidence that he's not going to drink. He said he wouldn't well then he arrives to the dinner in that in the dinner scene uh absolutely just falling over drunk yeah yep actually and i shouldn't say that because the stage directions say very specifically that he's not falling <laughs> over drunk but he's in a just, way that it's like this is the only thing that he's not you're doing. right i think it says he, he should be like bleary or something yeah. like that there's like a specific word yep which is a tough it's it's both a tough scene but it winds up being the most one of the one of the really big comedic scenes in this in this script is uh he the way the family interacts with him when he's like this and he's he's very comedic he's very uh jokey during the scene and eventually the entire table of them is laughing and it's a well, weird it, kind it of really it's a really great writing of the feeling of an old ritual yeah. You know, ritual is such a strong part of theater and you get this feeling in the scene that the they're in the family's bones exists an old ritual of laughing at Uncle Sid while he's drunk. Mm-hmm. He makes antics and as soon as he can see that eyes on are on him, he falls back into his old ritual of performing. And yeah. when he's drunk, he performs and performs and performs, and everybody thinks it's hilarious. And it is hilarious. It's, yeah, it, it's it, a funny You're in the scene. audience, unless you have a really personal connection to alcoholism that may cause you not to, I think m- most people are going to laugh at what's going on because it's funny. The yeah. writing is hilarious. At one point, he has a diatribe against spoons because yeah. he can't get the soup into his mouth. And so right. he talks about how there's a downfall of spoons, and he drinks his soup. <laughs> out of the bowl. I mean, that's funny. Mm-hmm. And and yep. ultimately, even Lily is laughing. And yeah. the end of that scene is what I think is a really smart reflection on what just happened, where where Lily says, "We were all laughing, including yeah. me." And I think as an audience member, you might go, "Including me, including <laughs> us." Yeah. And, and Lily says, "This is why he does it. This is why he doesn't stop. Because when he's sober, he's boring." And as soon as he has a drink, he becomes the life of the party, and we all laugh and love it, and that's what's killing him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and so I that that's interesting too that you bring that up. I think that's I, I it's interesting to see that find its way into as we've said before a play by a playwright who uses this uh, tool so frequently is to have that that extra beat of critique of like this is I mean we're, we are perpetuating we are enabling this to continue further and further and what could it be if if we all work together against that and. I, I agree that kind of up until this that point and then this scene with Richard, there's a pretty strong, um, I don't know, critique of the use of alcohol for fun or at least commentary on what alcoholism can do to a person. But then ultimately, I just feel like what happens with Sid and Lily doesn't resolve that internal tension in any yeah, way. Yeah, no. And that's, uh, while I love the Sid and Lily part of this play, I think it's beautifully tragic in the way that Eugene O'Neill plays are. Right. Um, it, 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 their relationship, at least, is straight out of any other Eugene O'Neill play <laughs> out there. Um, but I, I don't love the way it concludes. And it concludes really unsatisfyingly because basically Sid comes down after being in, uh, going through a hangover and says, I'm really sorry. I'm such a screw up. You should hate me. You shouldn't forgive me. I'm going to do this to you forever. I'm so, you know, well, I'm so sorry. And Lily just, oh, it's okay. She, right. she can't she can't bear the self-despairing, so she just forgives him. And things go back to normal, and they go off to see fireworks. Right. And that's, that's so unsatisfying. There's no <laughs> moment where Lily gets to stand up to him finally. There's no decision to move things in a different direction. But But ultimately, that might also be part of the critique of alcoholism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that cycle as well. You get the sense that this has happened more than once. Um, This is a rhythm that maybe they don't do as frequently anymore, but certainly they've done it before. And uh, probably the reason that they're still together at all is because that rhythm exists. Um, And and that might be, you know, plays, sometimes what plays do really well is put characters into rhythms and then force them to break their rhythm and something new happens. But that Mm -hmm. might be why the Sid and Lily plot is just a subplot, why it can't ever really rise to the level of being a central part of the meat of of the plot of the play because it's really all we do is witness a cycle and the cycle doesn't really change. Mm -hmm. There's no there's no indication that things are going to be different. It's, there's just it's just really watching something happen, yeah. and then watching that it's probably going to keep happening and keep happening and keep happening. Right. We just see the reset. Versus now jumping back to Richard, who definitely changes as a result of that night. <laughs> right. Yeah. His encounter with alcohol, with a particular lifestyle, a lifestyle that, and beyond just alcohol, the relationships between Sid's real life. And Richard's potential life are really close because also Richard's with this woman and it's the kind of woman that Sid is accused of being with all the time. In fact, at one point, Nat is like, I got this letter and it's written clearly by a loose woman. Uh, Sid, do you know who it is? Do you recognize this handwriting? And Sid is like, Nat, why would you think I know the handwriting? Oh, wait. No, no, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I regret the insinuation. And no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, and so, um, where was I going with? Oh, so there's a tie <laughs> between not only just the alcohol part, but also like the lifestyle choice part. Richard is in is put in a high pressure situation and saying, basically, ultimately, you can be like Sid or you can be like Nat. Mm-hmm. Those are the choices, and you are at a point in your young life where now's the time to decide. And he decides to do the right thing. And as we've mentioned, <laughs> yeah. that's that's unusual for Eugene O'Neill. <laughs> right, um, right. <laughs> but ultimately, Richard makes the right choice in this case and continues on his journey to become more like Nat right. rather than more like Sid. Mm-hmm. And you see the evolution post of that. It's not just arguably the moment in the bar is there is a moment where he makes the decision, but then he kind of just devolves and is basically kicked out. He doesn't have a lot of power in the bar after a certain point. The power, I think, and the change comes the next day. Well, when well, Nat- well I, I, yeah, I want to dispute you on that because okay. he only loses that power when he decides of his own accord not to sleep with Bell. Right. right. That's that's where he then he gives up his power because then Bell is no longer interested in him. 
And mm-hmm. that's so uh, he does have the power ultimately to decide his path. And he does that. He's not just a victim of circumstance. Sure. He sure. decides this is my line. I'm not, I'm faithful to Muriel or it's, yeah, he I mean, claims <laughs> it's because he's sworn off women. Ultimately, right. I think it's really because he's faithful to Muriel. Um, and because he has an internal sense of right and wrong and an internal innocence and an internal honesty, which we've talked yeah. about. But in the moment, his decision is, I'm not going to do this. This is not going to be my life. And that's where he loses power because in high-pressure situations like that, in uh, environments like that, when you say, I'm no longer going to participate, you become an unwelcome guest. Um, and mm-hmm. Richard becomes an unwelcome, very drunk guest in a bar. And sure, what sure. happens to unwelcome, very drunk guests? You get thrown out on your rear. Yeah, I think I agree. I, I mean, I definitely agree with that that uh, analysis of the power. But I think I think what I was uh, more talking about is connecting it also to the alcohol for the evening, which continues after that point. Right. Um, I see. Yes. Yeah. So he he says he says that he's not going to do it. He tries to back away. He starts to leave, and she gets mad. He says, "Well, if it's about the money, I'll just pay you the money. I don't care about the money." And he pays her five dollars, which is a lot in that scenario. And he's just going to leave, and she says, "No, no, no. Let." me let me buy you another drink and she keeps him there for a little longer and so he continues to drink he's still a part of that atmosphere and then he's thrown out as a result of that so right and so the journey of his interaction with alcohol continues later in the night where the journey of his interaction with bell ends for the most part there right yep and then he turns he we we get to see his lucid remarks about not liking and turning down that lifestyle the next day when art questions him about it but um, but before that he goes home and is witnessed by the whole family right. in a state of drunken stupor uh, yeah. At one point, he like the stage direction is just like he makes a, a mean gesture or something. And who knows what that would have been like in the 30s. But I imagine right. today it would be like he stuck his middle finger out you yeah. know, or, or grabbed at his crotch or something, you know, something that we, we would think, oh, that's gross. What are you doing right. that for? And that's what he does in front of the whole family. The whole you know, and family. He's, he's just sauced, they like to yeah. say, in the time. He's sauced. He's just sauced, he's mama. Just, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I did a southern accent. They're from Connecticut. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so he he kind of crash lands into home where they're all worried about him, and uh, he's taken upstairs. It's right after um, uh, Sid has come down and apologized for his behavior earlier in the night, and and then the next day he's brought. Uh, which which moment did it's it's later on in the day because uh right because nat comes home for lunch right it's the fifth of july now so he has to be at work but he comes home from lunch basically to punish richard richard is confined to his room and then basically told when dad gets home you're gonna get it and dad comes home for lunch but essie has such a heart for him that she's like oh he's sleeping let's not wake him up yeah so nat's like well fine and he goes back to work and Richard then conveniently wakes up. Like, oh, um, I'm, I'm I wasn't late. really sleeping, Mom. And uh, <laughs> learns that Muriel has sent a letter through Mildred and wants to meet him. And he goes to meet Muriel. So he doesn't actually interact with Nat until very late that night where they right. finally get to have this final interaction. And it's just I love that scene. I'd love to just play that scene like for competition yeah. or just as a, in a repertoire of scenes. The Nat Richard scene is awesome. What happens? Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's he, he winds up so he he talks to him about the alcohol and he, and they have this interaction where he's like, no, it was awful, I hated it, it was really bad. Um, but then he ends up having the sex talk with him pretty much or trying to, and uh, just well, it's just like it's a failing. version of the sex talk that's only really about prostitutes, right? Exactly. Like the whole monologue is like, you know, Richard, there's this kind of woman, right? And it, you're gonna have uh, urges as a young man, and there. There are there are these kinds of women that will indulge those urges, but uh, it's not good. It's you could get sick. I've never done it, and you shouldn't either. Right. And he just ends it by saying, "Like I'm sure you boys talk about this more than I know about it." <laughs> yep. And that's the scene where Richard ends up kind of showing his true colors and saying, and just saying that, like, no, no, this is. It was awful, <laughs> and I'm never going to do it again. 
Well, and, 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 and that again, he didn't really do it. He says, right. you know, to, to this woman who wanted to be with me made sex seem like this sort of dirty thing that I didn't want yeah. to do that made me feel sick. And I don't want that. And, and so I'm I'm never going to a prostitute again, he says. Right, right. <laughs> and that's contrasted then by the scene that he has with Muriel. Let's go to that scene because uh, for me it's like kind of the defining scene of the play. I think the two defining scenes are the Uncle Drunk Uncle Drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Sid <laughs> drunk at the table. Um. And then the Richard Muriel scene on the boat. So Mildred, mm-hmm. Richard's little sister, brings a letter, and she's a little sister, so she kind of teases him about it. But eventually he gets the letter. The letter says, I didn't mean any of that stuff my dad made me wrote. Meet me at the boat tonight. Mm-hmm. Oh, young love. <laughs> <laughs> so Richard, boom, takes off. Right, goes sneaks to the out boat, of the house. Yeah, goes to the boat and has some time because he gets there early. And has some time to reflect. And, and one of the things that he reflects on is this distinction between what he felt with Belle at the bar and what he feels for Muriel. And this imagining of, you know, someday when Muriel and I are married and we're going to be together in that way, it just feels entirely different for me than when I was with Belle. And so he has kind of a growing up internal recognition of this as well. Yeah, absolutely. He's, I mean, he, he, you can feel him internalizing and and going through all the the weird shame from the night before. He talks about uh, how angry he is at the barkeep for kicking him out on the street, stuff like that, and and just he's he's still hanging on to some of it, but he's dealing with the the the, the huge mood swings of emotions that are his age at this time. The moon is out. He's got. I mean, he's got his romantic setting of, of all his romantic poets in the world. Uh, that he's read. This is the setting for him to reside in for that moment. And uh, he's, yeah, he's like almost just giving himself a pep talk the whole time beforehand. And eventually (laughs) Muriel comes and what they have together is just a lovely young love scene. It's a scene that could not be more about two adolescent people (laughs) trying to figure out what it means to be quote unquote in love. Yep. And like how do... (laughs) <laughs> the how to tell each other that they did something wrong without giving too much ground. All right, <laughs> and, yeah. And it's... each of them kind of you wonder how much you you know how much Richard is lying. You don't know how much Muriel is lying, but like you just it just that that weird the give and take of what truth is, but eventually it all turns out quote-unquote okay. And how to use the truth for, like, your own gains, you know? Right. For young playwriting students, I actually think that that scene might be a really good scene in the play to study because he does such a good job and and such an obvious job, too. There's no real subtlety, and there's not that I'm saying that's a critique. There really shouldn't be. 16-year-olds don't have any subtlety. (laughs) Right. (laughs) There's no no subtlety for people of that age, especially in the realm of things that are awkward and deal with their hormones like yep. dating. And and so the, it, it's just so overt the way that both of them use the truth and the current situation just in sort of a power grabbing way. Uh, right. Well, I'm going to say this now so that you know that I did this last night. So, you know, I don't care that much, but I still care a little bit because I decided <laughs> not to do it for you as well. Right. And then enough to like get up and run after the other person if they start to move away. And, <laughs> and for Mur- at one point, Muriel like bites his hand. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's, it's such a lovely young moonlit moment. It's the kind of scene you don't get in Eugene O'Neill plays as much. Really. Absolutely. The kind yeah. of just pure romance, pure, like we said, comedy of recollection, right? It's, it's just pure like looking back on when you were young what's that called mm-hmm. when you uh like reflect on on is that like prior times? gestalt or something or um it's it's like nostalgia w- nostalgia that thank you that's the word yeah. i'm looking for it's it's you know that scene is just all nostalgia and and what i love about this play is the different layers that you see that in because then later richard comes home to his mother and father and tells them about this beautiful evening it's so great <laughs> out and that and yep. essie kind of look at each other and go ah i remember beautiful evenings like this when we were your age and how great we thought the weather was yep yeah 
know. they have they have that moment of experiencing the nostalgia that the audience experiences watching Richard and Muriel. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get the the kind of re- ref- referring back to the seasons talk that we you mentioned at the start of it. That's where uh, towards the end of that scene, after Richard has gone to bed. Nat and Essie have this 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 small scene at the very end. It's probably no more than a page where they begin, you know, talking about how, you know, there were probably, I, I remember nights like this. I can count them on one hand, the kind of nights these were. And we've been, we've had a lot of great times, but autumn is great too. And, and, and of course, then there's winter and all of that. So appreciating the seasons of life for these two as they watch their children go through the... And, the and actually, notably, Richard hasn't gone to bed. He's gone out on the porch to kind of revel in Thank the you. beautiful yeah, yeah. evening. And, and that comes into play because what they're really doing is watching him experience the, the evening. Uh, the, the production that Jack and I did when we were in college, I loved the way that the design worked. The Rather than having walls in the house, there were just uh, basically beams which signified the shape of the room. So you could see out onto the quote-unquote porch. So that yeah. scene really was a beautiful moment where you, you could watch Nat and Essie watch Richard through the window, quote-unquote, but then as an audience, you could also see Richard because you could see through the walls. And you yeah. watch this young 16-year-old sort of just embrace this new part of life, this new change that he's been through, these these adult decisions that he's made about his life and that have moved him forward and, and moved him into this beautiful relationship with Muriel. And you get to experience both watching Nat and Essie watch that, but also you getting to watch that like they are. So you experience that same nostalgia they get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all get to go on the nostalgic walk through that that they do and that I like that that final design too and it's another one of those slow fades. We've talked about slow fades before I think in Cyrano where like the lights just slowly fade all the way to night. And that that kind of happens at the end of this play as well. You the the you know the retina image you have at the end are the two parents in the house and uh Richard out on the porch with the moon and that's where we end the play. It's really beautiful. Yeah, and it's gorgeous because that's because what Richard has decided, we talked about this a moment ago, what Richard has decided is to try to have a life like Nat and Essie's rather than a life like Sid and Lily's. And in, in right. a different Eugene O'Neill play, it would be Sid and Richard at the end of the play <laughs> and right. Sid consoling Absolutely. him after he's come off his drunken binge and telling him how to get through the next one, you know? Right. I mean, yeah. this <laughs> that, will never end. That's the way every end. other Eugene O'Neill play ends. But <laughs> yeah. this one ends with the family reflecting on the good things that have happened to them, the blessings that they've had and the reality and the reflection that, you know, for Richard to go through a trial by fire, this one wasn't really that bad. Right. Ultimately he came out (laughs) on the right side of it and things might be okay now. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Maybe, maybe it's a turn for the better. They made him, they've even committed him to go to college, which is another battle. There's a whole bunch of other like small little battles that go on throughout this play, more family dynamics and all sorts of stuff. It's a really rich play. Eugene O'Neill is so great at writing the details of a family's life. Like one of the great, great, great moments of the play is Essie and her bluefish. And uh, I I lament, we've fallen into the trap of talking about plays from the 20th century. We'll have to try to not do this because plays from the 20th century are ultimately very sexist. All the weight of the play is towards the men. We just haven't talked about the women of the play very much. But one of the great moments of the play, potentially one of my three favorite moments of the play, (laughs) uh, is Essie and her bluefish. So she has been, she likes bluefish and Nat claims that it poisons him if he eats it. So... Yeah, well, it comes out that she has been systematically feeding him bluefish, uh, like for years, and calling it uh, weak, weak fish. fish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but today, she had sent Tommy, the youngest child, to the market to pick it up, so she knew that he knew, and she was pretty sure he was going to give it away. And it turns out, like, what happens over the course of the dinner? Right. Well, Sid being drunk ends up giving it away. He sort of intuits it by the way Tommy is reacting. And so this sort of longstanding trick that Essie's been pulling on Nat, which is just, it's that's so classic of like a family life, you know? Right. They have this ritual, which is that Essie feeds him bluefish because he says bluefish poisons him. But of course, everybody (laughs) knows it really doesn't. And then as soon as Nat finds out, he's like, come to think of it. I felt sick every time we've had fish for the past 10 years. 
<laughs> that's referred to later about eating lobster or something. Sid brings it up as there's a particular oil in lobster that <laughs> yeah. makes me sick. <laughs> Just uh, the constant ribbing that, that the family dinner scene does. is so funny too because Nat yeah. also tells this story that everybody knows and by heart, and yep. he's told a million times before about how he saved this kid, and so they all make fun of him for telling the story, and that ends up. Oh, it's just so funny. Yeah, the kind of hurt feelings as a result of that that everyone has experienced around a dinner table when something goes too far. Like so that's one of my three favorite three moments of the play, Jackson. What's one of yours? Oh boy. Um. Uh, well, I'll I'll uh, I'll do another. I'll do one of uh, from Nat again. Uh, having played Nat, there's there's the scene that we haven't talked about yet is when uh, Muriel's father comes over oh, with yeah. the with the love letters that Richard brings. <laughs> And he's he's. I, I, I'm laughing because uh, just of my memory of doing this show. I know this will be boring to most of you, but the guy who played Muriel's dad in our production was is just a hilarious person. Yeah. And his playing was just so over the top and so angry at everything. It yep. was hilarious. It was so just funny. Just fall over on the ground laughing watching him do this. Yep. Just this really kind of exuberant performance of it, and he comes in and he so the. The other father and Nat have this argument that is also based in power structures around like a newspaper and ads and you need me for this and you don't need me for this. And uh, it just devolves spectacularly to them storming out and yelling at each other. And so th- so that's a great little moment for me in the play. Um, uh, yeah, one of my favorite moments is um, at the end of the first scene, just after Richard has learned that Muriel has effectively broken up with him and he's heartbroken and angry. And remember, he's going through all this revolutionary stuff and about how the 4th of July is terrible and blah, blah, blah. And somebody comes in and says something that he doesn't like that sets him off. And so he runs off and the end of the scene is him yelling, I wish we still belonged to England. <laughs> yep. Again, I've probably said that at some oh, point in my well, family. Yeah. When I was a kid, I said a lot of stupid stuff. <laughs> right. Uh, not that we hate England, obviously. England's got right. a lot of stuff that looks pretty good right now from our end, and that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> Oh. We should we should culminate our conversation, Jackson, by trying to remedy our uh, mistake um, and talking about some of the women of the play and the ways that they what 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 some of the really poignant things that they bring to the conversation are. So, do, would you rather talk about Essie or Lily? We'll just trade them. Sure, um, I will talk about Essie. Right. Um, so. Yeah, so Essie is the matriarch of this family, right? She is the caretaker for the chaos that goes on, especially with the siblings, but also of, like, the fragile pride of these men. (laughs) There is, uh, like, a very brittle surface upon which they walk. Uh, throughout the play, uh, especially in terms of when they're when they're going to this picnic and coming back, she's she brings up in in the preparation for that that you know they're gonna come back and they're gonna have seen all their friends and they're gonna be both nostalgic but also want to tell all these stories and stuff like that. So she's like prepping the room for that to happen, but she is also she is. She is a a fierce guardian of her children in that world, too. There's a scene where she thinks Nat is going to lay into Richard for what happened and punish him. And she she like throughout the scene wants to know what the punishment is and keeps pushing and is like, so what is it gonna be? And and what are you gonna do? And don't be too hard on him. And what are you going to do? And he like threatens that he you know he'll say that he won't send him to Yale and she just like says no you can't do that it is your responsibility to educate yeah. all of your children and <laughs> she's got this weird paradox of being both the most strict parent and also the most lenient parent mm-hmm. like yep. she's constantly urging Nat to give serious talks and to punish the kids and she's always angry with Richard and uh, wants Art to do this and that and is yelling at Tom I mean she's she's clearly the stricter of 
the two. But then when it comes down to it, like she's the one that lets Richard stay in bed and she's the one that says, well, I told him he couldn't have dinner, but he just looks so sick. We needed to get him some food. And, and I, oh, he, he was sleeping. I couldn't wake him up. <laughs> so she's, she just goes between these pendulums of being like the really authoritarian parent of the two because Nat is far from an authoritarian parent. He's very much like a, we, if we treat each other like adults, we'll just all get along, right? Right. And she's <laughs> until, very much yeah. an authoritarian until she's not. And then she's mm-hmm. she'll let her kids get away with anything. Right. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think that's a that's a, a huge part of especially throughout the play, she is the through line of of that that uh, that that guardianship slash slash disciplinarian for a lot of it. And she controls a lot of the energy of the scenes too, because because she she's she's a little bit of a talker and she's a highly energetic character, and so a lot of the scenes, sort of what fills the things between plots happening, uh, are is her and, and her sort of directing the other characters in the play as a a classically matriarchal figure. She is constantly organizing and ordering the chaos of things like a holiday, things like dinner time, things like uh, morning rituals to get everyone off to work. You know, mm-hmm. she's just constantly the train conductor for all of that, and so she really runs this incredibly complex ship of of their family. Yeah, or like training. She's training the uh, the the maid during one of the scenes and trying to get her to to to. She's to, berating uh, the maid. Berating during the one maid. Of the scenes. Yep. I don't know that she's <laughs> training true. anybody. Right. Just do this better. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's a little bit cruel to the help. Yeah, yeah. not one of her stronger moments in an in a ethical sense. Yes. Um, so then the other main female kid figure. There's a few others, including Mildred, the daughter, and Belle, the woman at the bar, and um, Nora, the help. Uh, let's see. There's six women. So who else would it be? Uh, Essie, Lily, Mildred, Belle, Nora. Uh, Muriel, we yeah, Muriel, Muriel. Yep. but Lily and Essie are the really the primary characters and have the most interaction with what goes on in the stage. And, and like we said, Lily is this woman who's really been hurt by the perils of alcoholism, of gambling addiction, of uh, a man sleeping around, especially with prostitutes. So she is she's dealing with being affectionate towards and being in love with this man who. She sees a lot of good in, but she's also been hurt by and suspects she will be hurt by in the future. And she really, for me, encapsulates the battle of alcoholism, of watching someone who you love being hurt by something like this, but also hurting you and wondering at what point do you pull out completely? Yeah, she is. She absolutely through through the scenes with Sid, you get to see the very real struggle with that. You see a bunch of different stages of it too, like the the the, the pre uh, trusting, forming a deal, and then the breakdown, and then eventually the 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 attempts at restitution. She's also a, a huge peacekeeper throughout the family. When when uh, Essie is freaking out about Richard not being home, she's one of the one of the more successful calming voices. Um, Nat's kind of blasé attempts to calm things down don't work, and she's the one who comes up with he probably just couldn't get a ride on the trolley, and he's walking home. Um, so she she manages to kind of uh, set things at peace within the family organization. I, I I was trying to look for it, but she, I believe she has a scene with Richard as well, kind of a one on one scene with him where she, she does. Manages- yeah, it, it's in it's before dinner. And it's after he's received this breakup news. And she, she indicates, you know, we're, we're worried about you. We know that this hurts with Muriel. And he, of course, reacts so loudly. But I, I do think that you're right about her being kind of the clear-headed character. She seems to be the one with the most ability to uh, look at things rationally. And then, of course, all that falls apart when she deals with Sid. And, right. And, and that's what beautifully highlights the way relationships can kind of tragically blind us. And so the way that Lily interacts with Sid is so 
is so careful in some scenes because especially in that scene one, every time he makes a joke about not drinking, she's careful to kind of redirect him. But then you can also see that it hurts her for him to make jokes about that. So she's so contained and careful. And then she sees him drunk. She's immediately hurt, but then she's laughing alongside everybody else. Right. And of yep. course, she's got this longstanding commitment that she's not going to marry Sid. And he asks her, and we get the indication that he asks her all the time, um, and she continually says no, but then she does go out with him in the evening. So she is one of those people caught, like we've talked about, caught in this rhythm and unsure how to escape it. Because she talked, like uh, at one point, uh, Essie talks about how, well, he's making good money. You know, Sid is making good money at the paper now. He's, he's, you know, making enough money to get married. And Lily says something like, well, I hope he finds somebody who wants to marry him. You right. can tell it hurts her to say that. So she's trapped in wanting to be free of the rhythm in some direction, but unsure how to escape this cycle of uh, Sid's going to be on the wagon, Sid's off the wagon, I don't want anything to do with him, he apologizes, I want to be back with him. And Sid, in a similar way, follows that cycle, and they both end up sort of continually being hurt. Mm-hmm. We need to see that play. We need to get... <laughs> the Sid and Lily play. The Sid and Lily play. I, I'd watch another play about this Absolutely. family. They're so entertaining and... All such interesting, strong characters. I, I'd be interested to yeah. see what happens when Tommy and Mildred grow up and can contribute to the family <laughs> a little more. What their personalities are. You feel yep. like I feel like they're the two more underdeveloped parts of the family, mm-hmm. rather than having kind of specific personalities. They seem to just play like the little brother and the annoying little sister. Right, whereas they're kind of agents talk, of chaos. <laughs> right, whereas we could talk about Richard and his specific personality and outlook as a person, and Arthur, and Nat, you know, all these characters, and then you get to Mildred and Tommy, and, and honestly, it's hard to write kids. Yeah. But they end up being a little less personality and a little more stereotype. Mm-hmm, yeah. They drive action at, at times, Tommy drives action of the play at times, but... But yeah, I think I agree. Ultimately, it's hard to to kind of dig into them. But I mean, give them time. They'll be reading those, you know, anarchist texts in in a couple of years or so. Yeah, you get the sense yeah. that that's sort of what everybody did at that time. Right. <laughs> Send each other naughty poetry and <laughs> read about overthrowing the government. Yep. <laughs> Well, I'm afraid that is about all the time we have yes. for this one. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I think we covered a lot in this one, though. I'm pretty glad with the conversation, and hopefully you all are, too. Um, if you want to continue the conversation, if you've been in in the this production before, I know a couple of you have been, as I was in it with you, and you have <laughs> other things to uh, continue the conversation of, uh, with us about. We'd love to talk to you about it some more. Or uh, if you've just read the play and you have thoughts, reflections, you know, dramatic yeah. literature is a real treasure trove and uh, you know we think a really undiscovered treasure trove people talk mm. about the the fullness of western literature and i think they leave out a really full part of it and so if you're enveloped in that and you have read our wilderness seen our wilderness been in our wilderness designed for directed whatever your interaction with it is we want to hear from you and what you thought what are some of the metaphors that we didn't talk about what are some of the character developments that you think we really should have highlighted yeah, and you can do that on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at NoScriptPodcast is our username on all those platforms or by email, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. We are on all of those places and would love to continue the conversation with you. You can find our podcast on Podbean, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Those are currently the places it's hosting. We also post the link to every new episode on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So those are places where you can access the episodes from there. If you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook, that would greatly help us. But honestly, the thing that you could do that will help us the most is share the episode, tell other people about what's going on. You know, our listenership is growing week to week. We think people are discovering uh, conversation that is interesting and engaging about scripts which are awesome. So help us continue to build the culture and hopefully we can all be talking more and more about something that we really love. And if you want to support the show directly, we are over on Patreon. We have a couple of different tiers and options for you in terms of what you can give on a month-by-month basis to help keep doing the, help us keep putting out this show on on a uh, weekly basis for you all and talking about great scripts. So head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and we are over there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you all for listening. It's uh, it's, it's a pleasure to do this every week. Uh, we both love Our Wilderness and so it's, it's fun to get to return to this script that we've worked on before and maybe someday we'll work on together. Who knows? Yes, indeed. Again. 
Well, until next week then, uh, I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script. See ya. See ya.